Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. Think of the old people you know. Yes, those folks you connect with who are in their 70s, 80s, or beyond. And I realize, of course, you might even fit into that category. If all goes well, soon I'll enter that category. What do you think of the remarks by the old people you know? Do they offer wisdom? Do they complain? Are they forward-looking? Are they funny? Our theme for today is old people talking, primarily grandparents and parents. In fact, in our first poem, the speaker's grandmother holds forth in a monologue through all four stanzas. This is William Matthews' poem, Grandmother Talking. Do the pelicans seem scarce to you? The world is gorged with people, and these poor, baggy, rumpled birds are fewer year by year. They used to lurk, maybe to dry their wings, one to a dock post all along the bay. See how many posts are vacant? I met a woman who's been twice married to admirals, but they both died. Well, you're a killer, I told her, aren't you? And she said, yes. I am. Well, what else could she say? Cigarettes, I know now, stilled my husband's heart and left me all this time. They're afraid I'll fall on my back and squirm like a turtle while no one comes, so I'm sentenced to this walker. I hated to clump, but once I got wheels for it, I was off and dawdling going nowhere fast, since I'm going somewhere so slow, I often forget where en route. I wish you'd stay longer, and your pretty wife. You won't divorce her too, I hope. Well, who'd have thought it? Ninety-six. I packed my heart like a sachet and married a man from Cincinnati, and look what it's all come to. This, all of it, everything. That's William Matthews' poem, Grandmother Talking. Although it's a monologue poem, Matthews slyly inserts himself into it with his customary self-deprecation. The grandmother wishes he and his pretty wife would stay longer. She says, you won't divorce her too, I hope. A 96-year-old can get away with uncensored criticism, I suppose. If wisdom is expressed by the old people talking in these poems today, it's wisdom presented at a curious angle, or perhaps off-key. Robert Wrigley's Sweet Magnet, like Matthew's poem, seems to be set in an assisted living facility. The speech patterns of the speaker's father have been permanently altered. The opening stanza explains this for us. This poem includes an expletive. In order to abide by radio standards, I will pause silently for a beat at that word. This is Robert Wrigley's Sweet Magnet. It is the stage called Word Salad, 
says the neurologist. Schizophasia, the patient's lexicon cut loose from its roots, diced sometimes into awkward syllables, but assembled into mostly recognizable syntax still. Mostly, I am uneasy. My father, the patient, sitting between us, my mother and me, and saying nothing just now. True, he can't remember where I live sometimes, and he wonders where the babies are, meaning my sister and me. When we've returned to his room, my father contemplates the back of his hand for a long time, studies it even, then says, No, I believe that moon is bull. Then he looks at his palm and beckons me to come closer so that I might hear and understand. It's presidential war, he says. That's the way it's always been with me. Toothpaste, the weather. I agree. Let's get the car and drive far, he says. I loved that spaghetti necktie. Nothing to any of it but missing drums. Speak what you will. Each glossolalium sings. At lunch, the maraschino cherry in his fruit cocktail is a sweet magnet. The orderly's mop is mysterious silver, and the slick of its wash across the floor is something about the soul of a spoon. That's Robert Wrigley's poem, Sweet Magnet, from his 2013 volume, Anatomy of Melancholy and Other Poems. Typically on air, I won't be identifying the books where I located, located these poems. Through KMUN's website, you may link to my show site by clicking on podcast. There, I'll provide necessary information if you want to look up the work of a particular poet I featured who grabs your attention. Sharon Old's poem, her creed, like Wrigley's and Matthew's poems, sounds like it could be autobiographical. In the men's poems, we don't hear Matthew speak to the grandmother or Wrigley to the father. Old speaker, though, carries on a dialogue with her 83-year-old mother, who, she tells us, is going gaga so slowly she makes it look like a natural return to a state of grace. And this mother is very skeptical about cloning. This is Sharon Old's poem, Her Creed. I believe in the creation of the criminal, the evil people, my mother says on her 83rd birthday. Everyone born is a miracle. How did I know I would have you? She cries out. I don't know what I would have done without you, Mom, I say. I'd still be out there calling Mama, Mama. She laughs 
with the delight that lies near the center of her nature, now near the start of the end of her life. But she's worried about cloning. When they clone you, Mom, I tell her, I want one. I'll put you on the list, she says. I want the little kind that I can put in a high chair and feed cream of wheat to, I add. And she says, I'll move your name up high on the list. Over and over these days, she tells me they never will be able to make real flesh in a dish, not flesh with spirit. She tells me this once an hour. My mother is going gaga so slowly she makes it look like a natural return to a state of grace. Not real flesh, she assures me. The men cannot make happen what happened in her body. When she dies, she wants to see her father again and put her arms around her beloved husband. Not a living cell with the soul. Oh, but science, she sighs. You know, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Let's come back and check on them, I propose. On your birthday, in the year 3000, I'll pick you up wherever you are, from wherever I am, and we'll visit the earth. What will you be driving? she asks. Maybe I'll be riding on the back of a snow goose, I tell my mother. I'll honk. Shave and a haircut, she says. They will never make flesh. That's Sharon Old's poem, Her Creed. While the mother may be going gaga, the daughter deserves credit for meeting her on her own level. She doesn't argue with her mother about cloning. Instead, she responds playfully, affectionately. She says, when they clone you, Mom, I want one. I'll put you on the list, she says. I want the little kind that I can put in a high chair and feed cream of wheat to. And she says, I'll move your name up high on that list. Without any soulful talk of a possible afterlife, they agree to meet on the mother's birthday in the year 3000 to check on scientific developments to see if cloning of humans might be the norm. The daughter proposes, I'll pick you up wherever you are, from wherever I am, and we'll visit the earth. What will you be driving? she asks. Maybe I'll be riding on the back of a snow goose, I tell my mother. I'll honk. Let's consider another poem about a speaker's mother, Philip Levine's Soloing. This speaker, the son, is driven down a California highway to visit his mother in Los Angeles. The mother's quoted speech consists of just three words. She says, he 
was alone. He being John Coltrane, the mighty saxophone player. The speaker reads into this brief statement. His mother's three words, he was alone, expand in a profound way for this son. This is Philip Levine's soloing. My mother tells me she dreamed of John Coltrane, a young train playing his music with such joy and contained energy and rage she could not hold back her tears. And sitting awake now, her hands crossed in her lap, the tears start in her blind eyes. The TV set behind her is gray, expressionless. It is late, the neighbors quiet, even the city, Los Angeles, quiet. I have driven for hours down 99, over the grapevine, into heaven to be here. I place my left hand on her shoulder, and she smiles. What a world! A mother and son finding solace in California, just where we were told it would be, among the palm trees and all-night supermarkets pushing orange, backlighted oranges at 2 a.m. He was alone she says, and does not add, just as I am, soloing. What a world! A great man, half her age, comes to my mother in sleep to give her the gift of song, which, shaking the tears away, she passes on to me, for now I can hear the music of the world in the silence and that word soloing. What a world! When I arrived, the great bowl of mountains was hidden in a cloud of exhaust. The sea spread out like a carpet of oil. The roses I had brought from Fresno browned on the seat beside me, and I could have turned back and lost the music. That's Philip Levine's poem, Soloing. His mother's blind, but she gives her son an insight that wakes him up. John Coltrane visited her in her dreams and gave her the gift of song. In his ride to see her, he had focused on grim features, car exhaust, ocean pollution, flowers decaying. I'll read the poem's final sentence once more. What a world! When I arrived, the great bowl of mountains was hidden in a cloud of exhaust. The sea spread out like a carpet of oil. The roses I had brought from Fresno browned on the seat beside me, and I could have turned back and lost the music. Another poem that deserves our attention focuses on a brief exchange between the speaker and her mother 
an 84-year-old who is baffled by noises and voices she can't quite, quite place. The first half of the poem sets the scene. Then the dialogue unfolds. This is Jennifer Knox's poem, Name That Tune. Lately, my 84-year-old mother's been hearing noises. A party in the street below her bedroom window. Gruff men cursing, a woman's laugh, a scream. Beer cans dinking off the concrete. When she finally got the nerve to peek out, nothing but streetlight. Sounds coming from inside her, she says. Pops, clicks, swooshes, gongs, alarms, heavy steps pounding through her as if someone's stumbling around on the roof. Her cell phone rings. Hello? No answer from its flat gray face. Pounding on the door she never used to lock, so hard she feared the wood would split. But the people? Empty. A voice in the middle of the night. Joanne! Impatient to get her attention. That must be terrifying, I said. She giggled. It was something. You know that poem, I Sing the Body Electric? Of course. Did you recognize the voice? I asked. It must have been my mother, because she called me Joanne. She imitated her mother's scolding voice. In just that way. A woman, I asked. Yes, a stranger might call me Jody. Yes, so at least it's someone who knows you. That's Jennifer Knox's poem, Name That Tune. The poem ends abruptly. The mother asks if her daughter is familiar with Walt Whitman's I Sing the Body Electric, which maybe is included to suggest how much the mother's ideas are jumping around. Perhaps wandering in her personal past, the speaker's mother is certain she hears her own mother calling her, Joanne. Like the speakers in the poems I've just read by Matthews, Wrigley, Olds, and Levine, Knox's speaker seems so patient. She intends to assure her mother she need not be worried about noises and voices, especially if it's her mother's mother calling her. So far in the five poems I've read this morning, it's clear who the older person is speaking to. In our next poem, it's not clear who this older woman is addressing in her monologue. In 1996, when she was 83 years old and blind, Virginia Hamilton Adair published her first volume of poems. In Adair's poem, Where Did I Leave Off?, an older woman, 
the mother of a 55-year-old, explains in the first half of the poem some of her recent curious behavior. Then in the second half, she swoops back in time to when she was newly married and recounts odd features of her experience. The poem begins and ends with questions. This is Virginia Hamilton Adair's poem, Where Did I Leave Off? Where did I leave off yesterday? I stood at midnight with the mouse caught in a cornflake box and rustling slightly. What to do next? I stepped outside into the back door tangle of thorns and roses. I did not know my neighbors. They'd be puzzled to see a cereal box in their backyard. Good luck, little mouse, I said as the box sailed over the high fence. Our next mouse crept into an empty cider jug for the sweet drag. I stood the bottle up, a sad, sweet jail. Almost at once, she gave birth to a litter of six. I carried the bottle of mice to Lincoln Park and left the jug on its side for easy exit under a sheltering bush. They were all Beatrix Potter mice, dainty and lovable, not the gross travesties of Disney. I was lonely with my husband away all day at work, but after a wild party Kentucky Derby Day, we too began to breed in Rapley Caves under our thicket of pipes, but not in a cereal box or a cider bottle. In the first cyclone to hit the eastern mid-Atlantic coast, we moved to New Haven in such a deluge that canoes passed us on the Boston Post Road. And as we drove into New Haven, all the elms blew down behind us. I survived a surfeit of tainted oysters and gave birth to our first child. He will be 55 next week. Why am I telling you all this? That's Virginia Hamilton Adair's poem, Where Did I Leave Off? From the birth of mice captured in her house and then hopefully freed, to the birth of her own children, to memories of storms that seemed to take on a new power in her memory more than half a century later, Adair's poem highlights the time-traveling wonder so many old people experience. Today's final poem, like all of the previous ones, was written by a contemporary American, in this case, Naomi Shehab Nye. It may be helpful to know that Nye's father fled Palestine in 1948 when the State of Israel was established. He then moved to the U.S. Nye's poem, My Uncle's Favorite Coffee Shop, is not about 
her father, but perhaps it's about her father's brother, who longs to return to Palestine. Yes, the title refers to the setting, but much of the poem describes and reflects on the speaker's uncle. This uncle speaks only a few lines in the poem. For example, he knows the waitress by name, Barbara, and she knows him by his habitual breakfast order. This is Naomi Shehab Nye's My Uncle's Favorite Coffee Shop. Serum of steam rising from the cup. What comfort to be known personally by Barbara, her perfect pouring hand and starched ascot, known as the two easy eggs and the single pancake, without saying. What pleasure for an immigrant, anything, without saying. My uncle slid into his booth. I cannot tell you how I love this place. He drained the water glass, noisily clinking his ice. My uncle hailed from an iceless region. He had definite ideas about water drinking. I cannot tell you all the time, but then he'd try. My uncle wore a white shirt every day of his life. He raised his hand against the roaring ocean and the television full of lies. He shook his head back and forth from one country to the other, and his ticket grew longer. Immigrants had double and nothing all at once. Immigrants drove the taxis, sold the beer and cokes. When he found one note that rang true, he sang it over and over inside. Coffee, honey. His eyes roamed the couples at other booths, their loose banter and casual clothes. But he never became them. Uncle, who finally left in a bravado moment after 23 years, to live in the old country forever, to stay and never come back. Maybe it would be peaceful now, maybe for one minute. I cannot tell you how my heart has settled at last. But he followed us to the sidewalk, saying, Take care, take care, as if he could not stand to leave us. I cannot tell how we felt to learn that the week he arrived, he died. Or how it is now, driving his parched streets, feeling the booth beneath us as we order, or anything. Because if we don't, nothing will come. That's Naomi Shehab Nye's poem, My Uncle's Favorite Coffee Shop. I cannot tell you, this uncle says over and over, so the poet tries to suggest what he cannot tell, his love of the simple coffee shop in America, his desire to return to his homeland, Palestine, and of course, it's left up to Nye to tell that he died 
so soon upon his return. This has been Poems for Company. This show will be available on the KMUN website. Click on Podcasts and you will find it. Our theme music is Philip Auberg's Going to the Sun from his CD Live from Montana, available at sweetgrassmusic.com. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more poems with you at this same time next month.